upkeep. Draw me like one of your French girls. This is Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony Pasta Prodigy Maddox. That's overselling it a little bit, but I will take it. I think you have a natural talent for whipping up some noodles. I certainly hope so. I think noodles are one of the most beautiful and joyful things that we can have, even in these dark times. Can we get a quick tier ranking of just, uh, you know, a couple of your favorite noodle dishes? Like, what, what, how do the tiers kind of break down for you? Uh, that's a great question. Can we, can we, can we add dumplings? Can we, can we count those as a pasta dish, a noodle dish? I'm not, I mean, it does, I said <laughs> noodle dish, Immediately so I want to break the rules. I wouldn't call it a noodle, but I would call it a pasta dish. I mean, let's say my go-to is like some Sichuan style, or at least, you know, my best approximation of some Sichuan style dandan noodles. That's kind of my go-to. That's S tier. Well, but then I'm thinking ramen is maybe the like special occasion noodle. The S tier stands for S- special S- occasion. Special, special occasion. Especial. And then we got like Italian pasta, ragu a la bolognese. Now, where does mac and cheese fall? I have never enjoyed mac and cheese. Don't cancel me. So that's F tier, all the way down at the bottom. I think that I've never really uh, been exposed to high quality mac and cheese. Or like my mother would be like, oh, here's this American dish. It's mac and cheese. I can do that. Here's a bunch of like good quality cheese in some macaroni. And it just turns into this like solid mass. Like you need that Velveeta. You need those melting salts to really create mac and cheese. So you can it- also just make a sauce with some water or other liquid, you know, a little base and mix the cheese into it. Huh. All right. You don't have to use. I'm open to learning about cheese sauce. Turn me on to mac and cheese. Maybe I'll make you some mac and cheese sometime. Uh, just to close the close the door on this pasta conversation. Orzo, is that a, is that a pasta a noodle? How do you rank that? Or is that a rice? Oh, it's. I mean, it is a pasta. It's a pasta that's named rice. So uh, take that for a mind. There you go. One bleep already. It's not. That, that's my how you know you're a <laughs> passionate about pasta. <laughs> It's not my favorite pasta, but it can be pretty good. I've got some right now. I think what I'm going to do with it is add a little bit of some preserved lemons, some fresh herbs, and maybe maybe serve it with some beans. I'm going to make you my mushroom risotto, too, I think, then. If you oh, don't like yeah. it, if these are ranking low, I'm going to make you my mushroom risotto. I'm going to make you some mac and cheese, high-quality mac and cheese. We'll see if we can get you to turn around on it. It'll be hard to resist putting some chopped-up hot dogs in that mac and cheese, though. Ooh, it's hard to put, resist putting chopped-up hot dogs in anything. Hot dogs are just good. That was one of the first things we talked about in this show. Like episode one or two, we talked about how good hot dogs are, and they get too bad of a rap. And for guess being how trash many food. hot dogs I've had since then? Uh, more than in the, I think, in the previous six months, I would imagine. Yeah, that's probably true. Probably half a dozen. Yeah, that's a lot of hot dogs. Well, probably not for the average American, but for the average Anthony, that's quite a few hot dogs, I would say. Some of them were deep fried. Uh, some of them. Oh, those, we those made were, some really those good were deep fried hot dogs. Ones. Those were great. Those were a real triumph. so good. Very proud of us. This is unfortunately not a food podcast. Maybe we'll do a food special one time where we just don't even talk about magic at all. We just talk about a food topic that is interesting to us. The magic of food. I think there's a lot of overlap between people that like Magic the Gathering and people that like food. Oh, yeah? I don't think it's coincidental. Well, you know, there's there's always weird overlaps in things. Like, I've noticed there seems to be a strangely strong overlap in people that like magic and basketball. Like... I don't know anybody that likes basketball 
at all in my life, except for some of the pro magic players I follow on Twitter that will tweet about basketball, much to my chagrin sometimes. And I tried muting all the basketball related words, but they sneak them in there. Sometimes they just, you know, tweet a video with wow. And it's like, well, I'm not going to catch that with any of my, my mutes. I got I to gotta look at basketball stuff. There's weird overlaps, but I feel like some of them make sense. And food to me, I think there's a decent overlap of people that enjoy are like avid home cooks and magic players. And I think that's, those things feel related to me. It's like, it's a, a thing you can go really deep into. You can get very invested in it. You can really express yourself with it. But it's also kind of fundamentally the social thing for most people, which is not oh, true of a lot of really other things point. you can go yeah. deep on. I was thinking, this was a shower thought I had the other day. I think it's very easy to apply the, the magic R&D psychographics to food as well. Uh, so I don't know if we want to blow this sign off, but <laughs> would you consider right. yourself in the kitchen a, a Spike, a, a Spike, a Johnny, or a Timmy? Oh boy, I I'm, I'm tr- I can kind of grasp what you mean by this. Like, I am not particularly experimental, so I guess I'm not going to go Johnny. I feel like a Spike would be somebody that was trying to like maximize everything and make like really high quality meals. And my home cooking style is not really like that. At least not on the not on the average night. I kind of have these like you know safe go to recipes. Now I got to say I think. Making those deep fried hot dogs, that was a true Timmy move, right? That, that, that's Timmy food? I think that's Johnny food. I think Timmy food is like, I made the biggest rack of spare ribs or like a whole stuff. Oh, some cabbage. people do just like making big food. That's sure true. Do. Those Timmy Tammies love just, yeah, making, uh, you know, I roasted a whole pig or whatever. And I think you can actually be a spike in two ways. There's, there's the kind of spike you're describing where it's like you want to really like fully tweak out recipes. And I feel like I can definitely be that kind of spike about certain things like pasta, like I've really been trying to iterate on a couple different uh, noodle recipes, like just getting the hydration just right to get the kind of texture I'm going for. But I also think that kind of like mentality of how do I just make a meal most efficiently that checks all these boxes and does what I need to do and doesn't take up my whole day. I think that's a kind of spiky mentality, too. Yeah, but that just down that road just leads to Soylent. I'm not I'm not saying there's not an extreme version of it. So, so what you're saying is Soylent is the equivalent of joylessly grinding arena till you get to Mythic, basically? Yeah. It's like you're still doing the thing, but you, you lost the whole point. You lost the plot somewhere along the line. If you're but not I even think, having fun I think anymore, there are, what are there doing? are reasonable places along that spectrum. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. Like, I love cooking. I love food. That's not to say that I don't see the appeal of sometimes just having a healthy meal alternative like i i get the appeal of soylent what i don't get is the people that are like this is all i want to consume ever, anymore i don't want to do regular food because i have this instead it's like that seems like a fine option to have maybe you don't want to cook every single meal every single day but i couldn't imagine not wanting food you know it's hard to imagine people not getting any joy out of a good meal just as it's hard to imagine somebody not being ridiculously obsessed with magic great transition anthony because this is our magic podcast lucky paper radio and this episode, you know, we are um, we're recording earlier in the week than we normally do. So we kind of are, we only recorded our call time set review a few days ago. And I thought we should spend an episode, Anthony, kind of up in the clouds, in the theoretical clouds, talking about just what is card evaluation, right? We, we talked a lot about our evaluations of cards in that episode. And I think sometimes it's easy to take for granted what goes on in our heads, in the heads of other Magic players when you're thinking about trying to evaluate a Magic card. And so I think we're going to talk about that this week on Lucky Paper Radio. But we're going to begin with a pack one, pick one from a listener-submitted cube. And our cube this week, Anthony, comes to us from listener Miko. And this is a Mirrodin Extended Cube. 
It's designed to be drafted with four players instead of the full eight. So we have a bit of a smaller cube here, only 230 cards, and it's drafted in four packs of 11. There is one other stipulation, which is that at the end of the draft, every player gets one optional free Relentless Rats, copy of Relentless Rats, which, uh, you know, if people don't know that, that's the one black, black, two, two rat that gets plus one, plus one for each other card in play named Relentless Rats. So... Presumably, they're trying to support some kind of Relentless Rats deck in addition to the rest of the themes of the cube. I'm going to read the pack. Anthony is going to help us evaluate the cards within it. And then we're going to talk about how on earth he did that in his brain. The pack is Arrest, Steel Sabotage, Spire Monitor, Relentless Rats, Spire Golem, Titan Forge, Golem Artisan, A Quarter Shield, Sea Chrome Coast, Master Splicer, and Molten Steel Dragon. What do you make of this pack, Anthony? So this pack, like many, I think is pretty difficult for me to evaluate, uh, but not necessarily for the reason it often is. Like, in a, lot of, a lot of times we look at a cube and there's just a very consistent power level and cards that are good for different reasons in different contexts. Uh, this is a little bit hard for me just because it's all... Cards from the Mirrodin block, and transparently, I did not play at that time, so I feel like there's a very yeah, different... neither of us have played Mirrodin Limited. Unfortunately, I would love to, if anybody's got an old box they want to crack open. So I feel like there's just different sort of baselines for what, what you expect out of cards that makes it a little bit difficult. That being said, there are two cards that are really drawing my attention, uh, and I think those are Arrest and Master Splicer. So Arrest is basically a pacifism, but also stops uh, activated abilities for three mana. And Master Splicer is four mana for one one, but it makes a three three golem. And golem creatures you control get plus one plus one, so it's just a very efficient creature. Yeah, it basically makes a four four golem and a one one for four mana, which is quite good. I'm also looking at two cards. There's a little bit of overlap, but not complete overlap. I think Master Splicer is in contention here, and I, I agree with you. I am, feel kind of unmoored looking at this pack, having not played Mirrored Unlimited. I know that artifacts are important in that set, which is where we have affinity and those sorts of right. things. So my first inclination is to look at a card like a quarter shield and go, well, this just seems like a really below-rate equipment, but it's a zero-mana-cost artifact, which would fuel affinity and all those sorts of things. So I don't... I fully admit that I'm, I'm, my evaluation here is not very well informed, but given what I do know about the game, I will say this, I'm not on the Relentless Rats plan. Looking at the cube list, there are three other copies in the list, and given that it's drafted with four players, it's not so unlikely you end up with a couple of those, maybe all three if you're lucky, which would then be four Relentless Rats in your deck, but I gotta say, even with all four Relentless Rats, I'm not super excited about that plan, so I'm gonna leave Relentless Rats in the pack. I think, well, I'll, I'll put three cards in here. The Fixing Land, I think, is a perfectly reasonable place to start if nothing is pulling you one way or another. I agree, Master Splicer seems quite good. The card I think I'm taking, though, is just Molten Steel Dragon. I mean, this is a 4-4 uh, four, four Flyer with Fire Breathing for a red Phyrexian mana. So for either a red mana or two life, you can give it plus one, plus one to end of turn. And its mana cost is four generic mana and two red Phyrexian mana. I'm just seeing a 4-4 four, four Flyer I can play on four mana, Anthony. I see what you're saying, and this I looked at that as well. For me, the question is, how much removal is in the format? Because in a lot of cubes, there's a lot more removal than in a standard, you know, a, a limited set, which makes a, a creature that enters the battlefield and does four damage to you quite a liability. But being a sort of like block cube, maybe this actually mirrors limited more, and that's actually going to be just a really powerful sort of bomb. Yeah, from a brief 
glance around the cube list, I'm not seeing a super huge abundance of removal. Like, it seems more like a limited density of removal than a really removal-heavy cube density of removal. And, yeah, I mean, I just, I really like that this card is colorless, and it feels like from looking at the rest of the pack, we have, like, three mana pacifisms, we have five mana three-three flyers, we have the relentless rats, which, under, you know, the best circumstances, I think are going to likely be, like, a three mana three-three most of the time, if you're lucky. There's a lot of things here that don't seem that efficient, and I just feel like if I slam down a four mana four-four flyer, maybe I just win, is what I'm thinking. I wouldn't agree that this is colorless, because I think that four life is a lot of life. You know, this isn't Gitaxian Probe that you're going to just put in every deck and be able to cast it early on before your life total really matters. Uh, and especially, you know, this could be a slower, grindier, like, more, like, limited format where that four life could matter a lot. And having a, a, a four mana four four that deals four to you that then potentially you can't even activate its abilities either if your life total is low. Like, I, I think I would still want to be in somewhat of a red deck to play this. Certainly that would be better, obviously, but I don't know. I, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like in regular limited, I think Steel Dragon's a pretty strong card. I would pretty happily... I mean, this is a, this is a great example of somebody that's played Mirrodin limited will know the answer to this in ways that we do not. Like, either this card was a bomb or it was a liability, and I, we don't really know. But my first read on this is that I feel like it's pretty strong. Master Splicer is, doesn't give it a strong run for its money. And honestly, if Master Splicer was a Phyrexian mana instead of a solid white... I might consider it, but I don't know. I just like that I can play this in any deck that I draft, and whether it's really optimal because I ended up in some combination of red and other colors, or whether it's maybe a bit of a liability is maybe up in the air, but, you know, I can't play Master Splicer in my my green-black deck. It's not an option for me. I wonder if the right choice here is actually just Steel Sabotage. I mean, this card is unsummon or counterspell for artifacts, and that's so efficient at one mana if, if you're actually going to expect to see that many... Uh, that many artifacts in play. This could be the, the top card by, by a big margin. That's a great point. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, looking at the list, I mean, a, a big portion of the creatures are artifacts, but it's not so many that I would be totally confident this would be do something in every matchup. I'm going to take the dragon. You know why, Anthony? I haven't first picked a dragon in a very long time in a, in a magic draft, and it just feels good to take a dragon first. That's what I'm on. Fair enough. Uh, I think I'm still on Master Splicer, but uh, I definitely could see that, that being the, uh, the wrong pick. I don't think either of us are very confident about this pick, so uh, write in. Tell us what we did wrong, what you would have taken from this pack, Miko, the owner of the cube. And thank you for sending in your cube. If you want to have your cube on Lucky Paper Radio, you can mail it to mail at luckypaper.co. Include your name, include your pronouns, and we'll put it on our list. This Relentless Rat stipulation is going to haunt me, I think. It's, it's so weird because, obviously, in a draft, you want to be the one player that has all of the Relentless Rats. So to say everybody has a few is kind of like, it feels so antithetical to the way the mechanic works. At the same time, so often in a limited set, we'll say, well, you know, the first copy of this is a C, but once you get the second copy, it's a B, and then it goes up from there because it's something that works in multiples. So kind of just saying, well, the first Relentless Rats is already at that next tier... Uh, is maybe kind of where they're they're angling, and, and that could be an interesting way to sort of shape the way that people evaluate the card. In a cube like yours, how many... If we did the thing where, you know, you ever seen where someone does, like, with Squadron Hawk, you draft one, the one in the cube, and you get the other three for free, or, like, little draft packages like sure. that. If someone were to make a Relentless Rats draft package, where there's only one copy in the cube, but if you draft it, you get X number of copies of Relentless Rats for your deck... At what number do you think that becomes a viable strategy in, like, your regular cube? 
I, with very little experience, I'd, I'd sort of need to have this proven to me, but I feel like it would have to be upwards of six. Like, the really, really powerful thing about that is not so much that you're getting this, like, potent Relentless Rats package, but it means you basically get six extra cards, which really sort of warps the draft and lets you take a lot of more conditional things. So you don't need to make Relentless Rats great, I don't think. You just need to make them up to par. And I feel like six in a 40-card deck is where you need to be there. Because if, if you just have two in play How many once, would you play? Well, you'd, you'd want to play all of them. I'm saying... If I gave you 100, how many would you play, you think, in a 40-card deck? What do you think is, like, the peak optimal amount of Relentless oh, Rats? 24. Would you really play that deck? I think so. I think that deck would be quite strong. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that deck would hang in your environment, frankly. We can you find do nothing, out. We you can do, nothing do this on experiment. Turn. This is a pretty easy experiment to do. But you do nothing on turn one and two, and then you start playing one rat a turn, probably yeah, for the next four three, or five three turns. three mana is a challenge. You're, you're not going to be I don't think spelling. you want that many three drops. I was going to say, I, I mean, for example, in my cube, I don't, you give people thousands of relentless rats. I don't think it ever becomes a viable strategy at my power level. At yours, I'm still skeptical that it would be good, even with an unlimited number. This mirrored and extended cube seems lower power level for sure, but I, I don't know how many I'd have to have before I'd be excited about it. Even if I knew I was going to get all four, still not that excited about it in this cube, I don't think. I'd be much more excited about Seven Dwarves, even with the, uh, the weird uh, limited restriction on it. But two mana is a huge difference from three mana. Oh, and yeah. starting with the Dwarves as a two mana, two two makes it a much more viable strategy. Like, you have to question. keep a two land hand in your Relentless Rats deck, right? But then you just might not hit your third land, and then you do nothing. You do literal nothing. Yeah, all right. I'm, I'm all for Relentless Rats. Let's stick with Squadron Hawks. All right, Anthony. Now, let's go behind the curtain. How did you... Take all this information written on these cards, process it in your brain, and make even some, let's, let's you know, put all hubris aside. How do you even make any kind of guess or suggestion at what you think might be one of the more powerful cards in this pack? What goes on in the mind of a player when evaluating a card? All right, so I think there are two metrics that most people will stick to first. Uh, the first metric is, which of these cards do I already know? And the second is, which of these cards have the coolest illustrations? I totally agree on the first metric. I, I think there is a huge, I'm not sure what to call this, but a familiarity bias, I guess. I, I find myself all the time, if I'm playing another cube that is maybe a different power level than my own, but there's a card that is also in my cube, even if I know logically, like, well, you know, this card scales with the power level of the environment, it's very hard for me to not be pulled towards the card, which is a very known quantity, a card I've played with a lot, thought about a lot, put in a lot of decks and have a lot of experience casting. And... Cards that are unknowns, I, I always rate lower. Like that's that's a for sure a bias. I think the illustration thing is maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit you, maybe a little subjective and personal. But I do think that first bias is very real. Yeah, I, I'm being uh, tongue in cheek, obviously, but I do think that is. I'm not, making a that's joke. Not, that's not a a correct way to evaluate cards, but I think that is a very real bias that influences people's card evaluations. Yeah. So what I'm what I'm actually looking at is, I mean. So what are we talking about? We're talking about power level. We're talking about, does this card do more <laughs> compared to other cards in a game of Magic? Um, and so the way we try and do that is by trying to draw comparisons on like known axes to try and f de determine which cards are actually more efficient than another. So in this pack, we're looking at you know a 5-mana 3-3, three, three, a 6-mana 2-4 that has the potential for this discount, and the Master Splicer, which adds five power to the board, that, that's sort of an axis that we can try and start aligning these cards along. And then we have to try and factor in some of these extra quantities. So 
one of these creatures has affinity for islands, so the question is, well, at what point does that actually become more powerful than the splicer? Because I expect to be able to cast it for this amount, and how do we factor in the details of if I'm mono blue or in a two-color deck? Then we might look at the Spire Monitor, which we didn't talk about. It's a 5-mana 3-3 with Flash and Flying. Obviously worse stats, but trying to suss out, well, how often can we actually get a 2-for-1 by ambushing a creature? And that's really difficult because, again, having not played Mirrodin, I don't really know how the games play out. So even though we can compare sort of cards on known axes where it's like literal power and toughness, it's very difficult to compare cards on these unknown axes of like, well, how do we compare the actual power and toughness versus the potential for an ambush that we don't actually have good data for? Yeah, I think the most important thing to establish first with any kind of card evaluation, and I'm sure you will agree, is context. You can't just say, is this a good or bad magic card, right? Or take two, I mean, very under very rare circumstances when cards are totally aligned on many of the axes and different on only one, you can oftentimes make a statement about a card being almost always or you know, almost strictly better than another card. We always bring up the lightning bolt open fire analogy. Like it's very hard to argue <laughs> that there's many situations where you want open fire instead of lightning bolt. Though I will say, I did see, uh, I was watching some modern videos earlier, and this new Tybalt's Trickery deck runs Rift Bolts for removal instead of Lightning Bolt or something else because it doesn't want to be able to cascade into non-combo cards. And so there's an example where your Rift Bolt is better than your Lightning Bolt because your Lightning Bolt would just basically fizzle your cascade combo. So these places do exist. We consider all day and just name examples, right? Like, I'm always struck by... Mystic Forge, which was that four-mana artifact that let you play colorless cards off the top of your library, and it was a card that didn't see any standard play, as far as I know, doesn't really see any play in Modern or Historic or Pioneer, but immediately had to be restricted in Vintage, because it was such a huge problem that it is among the verified air of cards restricted in Vintage, and this happens all the time, and I think it's tempting to try and look at kind of all of these formats in the aggregate and try and like lump everything together into one overarching like well overall in magic this is a good card or a bad card and that may be possible but I'm not sure how entirely valuable that is because all that serves to do is make you be pulled towards that idea you have of what average magic is when you're evaluating a card but you're always evaluating a card in context you're never doing it generally like that and so trying to be pulled towards that idea of an average power level of a card can only really distract you, I think, from from evaluating a card properly in a specific context. Yeah, I mean, so much of the information that we assign to a magic card is to some degree portable, um, but what you're getting at is that we can't just say, well, let's look at this card, you know, I've played with Master Splicer before, I can't just stamp a B-plus on it and move on, because when I see Master Splicer again in a new cube, it's going to be a little bit different. And the the Spire Monitor, the 5-mana the 3-3 three, three Flash, is a perfect example because that was in a recent limited set. And just in that set, the way that the, the tempo of the average games played out and the size of creatures, it ended up being a pretty subpar creature. Talking about Adaptive Shimmer? Uh, not Adaptive Shimmer. Uh, it was some sort of cloud guy. Isn't Adaptive Shimmer a 5-mana 3-3 three, three with Oh, uh, Not with Flying, though. Not with Flying, yeah, but Adaptive Shimmer was pretty good, though, right? Uh, Adaptive Shimmer was fine. Uh, it had this uh, whole separate thing of being made of counters, uh, and yeah. being a non-human to mutate on, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, just another example that, like, very similar cards, ostensibly similar cards, you know, small differences make huge, make huge differences in their power level given context. Right. So, I mean, the, the other aspect of that is that 
we are starting with that baseline, and that is still useful. You know, it's good to not get attached to your biases, but when you're opening up a pack of a new cube, it's still worth saying, well, okay, I know sort of like what my balance, what my average baseline of uh, how I expect these cards that I'm familiar with to play out. But treat that just as a baseline and say, okay, let's not get too attached to that. Let's think about what factors might be different. And I think what we might uh, get to a little later is that the really valuable part is actually coming up with good explanations for why these cards are good or bad or, you know, yeah. why, why they play out the way they do so that when you approach them in a new context, uh, you're not just saying like, okay, well, let's throw it out. Let's start from scratch. Let's actually figure out what we need to tweak about that evaluation because it's actually composed of, of more nuanced uh, uh, backing. Right. And that to me is one of the most exciting and engaging things about Magic, that it's a game that is rooted in this consistent rule set that applies to every single card ever printed, I mean, black border card ever printed in the history of the game for the past 25, 26 years. And yet, every three months, we get a whole new batch of cards with new mechanics that do things that magic cards have never done before. And we have this challenge of trying to make sense of them, right? whether it's for limited or for putting cards in your commander decks or your cube. You have to try and figure out what these cards do and how you evaluate them. And so I think what ends up happening, like the way I think about it, is that context is so important to the evaluation of a magic card, as we've established. Cards are radically different power levels in different environments. And so oftentimes the like summary analysis of a card is not transportable. But in order to build transportable knowledge about magic cards and how they behave, we basically end up inventing these ideas that are not printed on the card. And I'm talking about ideas like card advantage, ideas like tempo, ideas like a mana curve, these things that no card says tempo plus one or tempo minus one, no card says I'm a two for one on it. It's not in the actual rules of the game. This was invented by players and theorists to better understand how cards interact with one another and build this level, this layer on top of the actual magic cards themselves of transportable knowledge. And then you can say, well, two for ones are generally good and here's why. And I can now look at a new card that features a mechanic I've never seen before, but recognize that it is a two for one. And therefore it slots into my understanding of how this card affects the value and tempo of a game as it's played. And same goes for every other thing, right? A one mana two two or a bounce spell that costs six mana, right? Like you can evaluate that because of this layer of meta knowledge that we've built about the game. We've just invented all this stuff basically to explain how things work. And so that's what card evaluation is. I think it's this conversation between the context you're in specifically in which you're trying to apply this meta knowledge you have about all of these other properties of these cards to make a good guess or a good, a good estimate of how you think the card is going to perform. You play with the card in the, in the actual games or, you know, in your cube or whatever. And based on that playtesting, you get a bunch of data about how it performed. And, and when I say data, I don't mean like I won or I lost or the card, you know, was good or was bad. I mean, you get this little nuanced data of like in this exact board state with my opponent having this many cards in hand and I cast this card, it felt good or bad for these reasons. And what felt good or bad means is really just an evaluation of, how risky or rewarding is this play in the context that I'm in. And with each of those little plays, you as a player learn a little bit more, which you should then try and apply to that layer of meta knowledge, right? Like when are two for ones bad? Like there's times when two for ones are no good anymore. And that's a thing you should be aware of. And you should be learning as you play when two for ones are no good. And then you can start applying that knowledge in ways that is actually productive to card evaluation, whether it's 
an environment you've played a billion times before or a completely new cards that are being explored you've never seen with brand new mechanics. Right. So part of what's sort of implied in what you're saying is you're not just talking about card evaluation in the sense of here's the new set before I go to pre-release, I want to know what's good, what's bad. You're also talking about this sort of ongoing refining and learning about uh, an environment, right? Yeah. I mean, to me, that's what card evaluation is, right? Like you can go download the spreadsheet of limited resources, rankings of the cards if you want. But if you listen to their set reviews, they always say, and I think this is very true, that, you know, they put the grade on it because it like puts a button on the conversation and it also like kind of grounds them. I think sometimes the way they're discussing the cards, this is a great example of card evaluation too. The way they're discussing the card is they might be extra critical of it because they think the baseline assumption of the player looking at it is going to be higher than they think it should be. Or they might be baseline. I think often when they're when their expectations of a card are in line and strong, they'll be they'll come off as much more positive about it. They'll just be like, "Yeah, this is a solid C. We like it. It'll do what we expect to see to do." And so it sounds very positive. And then just that, like you're saying, that grounding and saying, "It's good. It does what you expect." But the expectation is it's it's a medium card. Is is a relevant baseline. Well, yeah, but, but what I mean, though, is that sometimes they'll agree that a card is a C, but if you listen to the previous conversation, Luis was being really critical of the card and saying, well, it doesn't, it's not good in this situation, not good in that situation, and Marshall's saying, oh, actually, I think it's fine for these reasons, and it's just because they were maybe operating from a baseline assumption of, like, people think this card looks good, let me explain why it's not actually that good, or people don't think this card looks good, let me explain why it's better than they think it is. So that, that grade is, like, it's just a shared scale that he and Marshall and LSB have agreed on to basically like set a baseline for their for their ratings but just looking at the grade doesn't actually really help much at all you couldn't give the grades to a player who has never played the format before hasn't drafted much and you know is sitting down with brand new cards and just say here are the grades draft a good deck they have one tiny piece of the picture of what actually makes the cards good and really it's a discussion that Marshall and Luis are having where they are actually talking about these things, these meta ideas of like, this is a two for one. This is a really, this is really well on the vanilla test. The vanilla test is another great example of some of this explanatory knowledge, right? Like this is a, this is a card where just the value of this body on board is a good rate for this mana. Anyway, to me, that's what card evaluation is, right? Like I don't think card evaluation is look at a card and then thumbs up, thumbs down, like some great judge. I think it's this ongoing conversation with yourself and other players and on all different sort of platforms to better understand how the cards relate to each other and make a game. Yeah, and I think if we want to take that even further, it's not even just about putting a stamp on a card for its broad power level. And then, you know, the the next level is uh, thinking about it in the context of a particular environment. And then the next level is thinking about it in the context of a particular deck. And when you have that kind of explanatory knowledge, you're not just saying, well, this is next in the pick order, so I'll take this. Uh, you're thinking, well, I actually have to adjust my pick order because I have this extra context of the cards that I already have in my pool, and that's going to uh, affect how I evaluate each card. So really, I think every card evaluation comes down to, I think, and maybe you can poke holes in this, I think it's really just two questions. Uh, okay. They have some sub-questions in there. One question is just, in what circumstances is this card good, and what circumstances is it, is it bad? We talked about, you know, cards like Steel Sabotage in, uh, in our pack one pick one, which was the unsummon or counterspell for an artifact. And in what situations is that card good? Well, it's very good when my opponent has lots of artifacts in their deck, or it's 
turn three and they're curving out and they're casting an artifact and I have one mana up, it's, it's very good in situations where I could attack for lethal, but my opponent has one artifact blocker and now I can bounce it and kill them. Like we can, we can imagine the situations where the card is good. We can imagine situations where the card is bad, where my opponent has no artifacts in their deck and it's a totally dead card or very few artifacts and they're not that impactful, so they're not worth countering or bouncing back to my opponent's hand. It's not, it's not a good tempo play to do that because the spell is not particularly impactful. That's one, that's one question. It's just, when is the card good? When is the card bad? And I actually think most marginally experienced Magic players don't really disagree on this aspect of card evaluation. People will pretty much agree, like, yeah, Crater of Behemoth is really good when you have six creatures in play and you cast it with four of them still untapped. Like, it's a really good card. The second part is, in what ratio do those circumstances occur over the course of playing a game? How often in this Mirrodin Extended Cube am I going to run up against an opponent with either none or low impact artifacts such that my Steel Sabotage is no good? Or how often am I going to run up against an opponent that has this amazing artifact-based deck and this card becomes a one-mana, very clean answer to any big threat? And that is the question of context, of course, uh, and there's many layers to that, but I think that is really the part of card evaluation that is most difficult, is just knowing or having a sense of how often these kinds of scenarios come up in a game. How often is this card good? How often is it bad? I actually don't think players disagree on whether a card is good or bad, given a specific scenario. I think it's worth pointing out, though, that that's still pretty reductive. It's not just a matter of, is it good or bad? Like, there's a lot of different levels and gradients and gray space in that. Like, you can look at Steel Sabotage and say, okay, well, in this environment my opponent is almost always going to have an artifact in play. But if 60% of the time it's a zero mana, a quarter shield, it does almost nothing for you. Uh, and then, you know, at the extreme, they have a molten steel dragon. But but there can be all these flavors in between as well. So it's like this bell curve. Of, steel sabotage is pretty good against molten steel dragon. <laughs> it works out pretty well. One I mana for myself to play a dragon. Uh, I bounce it for a quarter of the mana. Uh, I for myself again, I guess? Ooh. Seems strong. Do you still like that dragon? I do, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Look, I'm a glut for using my life as a resource. I love doing Ooh. it. Give me Dark Confidant with six drops in my deck all day. Bold. I'm a sicko. I still think, though, that's the question. That's the second question, right? Like, I think we'd all agree that if you have a Steel Sabotage in hand and your only target is a Quarter Shield, yeah, pretty awful. That card's not good. You're, you're already getting at the second question, though, which is how often is that going to come up in this environment? Right, yeah. There might be a third question here, which is... Even if we can agree in the circumstances when a card is good and the circumstances when it's bad, and even if we have some reasonable guess at how often these circumstances are likely to come up over the course of play, there is the question of balancing it. Is the times where the card is good worth the times where the card is bad? Because good is obviously not a binary, it's a spectrum. Like, how good is good and how bad is bad? And some cards win on the spot 20% of the time and 60% of the time do nothing and there's a 20% in the middle. But you might be willing to play a card if you're just trying to optimize your win percentage that is a dud 60% of the time, but 20% of the time wins on the spot immediately. And that might be a weird calculation to look at and say, well, under most circumstances, you know, we, we can agree uh, this is usually going to do nothing. But the times it does something, it's so worth it that having a dud in your hand every once in a while is, is an okay thing to have. So you're saying a card that can be an F 50% of the time and an A the other 50% of the time is the same as a card, which is always a C. 
Uh, no, it's definitely not the same. I'm saying this axis is why it's not the same, because you can't just average the times it's good and the times it's bad and say, well, that's how good the card is, because it has a very different impact on everything, on the, what kind of decks it goes into, on play patterns, on how you make in-game decisions. It It's it's a whole different part of the evaluation, I think. Sure, but just, just on the, the simplistic axis of, like, what does this card add to your win percentage in the hypothetical time-traveling supercomputer context where we could figure that out... We could have cards that are extremely high variance, but still contribute to your win percentage in the same way as a card which is much more consistent. I think that's, I mean, we're going to go back and forth saying this this entire episode. I think that's pretty reductive, too. It's hard for me to imagine a deck with card A in it, you know, a playset of card A that is perfectly reliable, always a C, just doesn't really care what the opponent's doing, just always does its thing and is totally playable. And then swapping that out with a playset of another card that is wildly variable and having those decks still play the same ways. Like, I think that it's, it's almost impossible for that to happen. Because I mean, they're, I feel they're, like with- they're not going to be the same, but I'm in my reductive statement saying they both add to your win percentage exactly the same amount on average. Well, that, like that, that like, is a scenario. In, in what matchups is that ceiling card now, you know, better or worse? How many of those matchups am I going to play in the current meta? I don't know. It's, it's I don't know. Let's talk a little bit about playtesting, which you've already touched on a little bit. We were actually kind of inspired to do this episode by the little conversation we had at the beginning of the Call Time review episode with Jet, where we were talking about Zolfix's uh, call, where he called in and basically said that you know, his level up was that people should be playtesting more. You just get out there and test the cards, you know, because playing with them is the most is the best way you can get some experience with how the cards actually play and evaluate them. And as I said in that episode, I, I agree with Zolfix. I think playtesting is hugely valuable. But its value is also dependent on your attitude towards it. Like, just playing with cards is not going to inherently make you understand them better. It's playing with cards with a curious mind and an eye to evaluating them that is going to make you understand them better. And crucially, I think that if you're playtesting well and productively, what you should be doing is furnishing yourself with a good explanation for your evaluation. If you come out of a playtesting session and I say, Anthony, I saw you had Dream Devour in your deck. How was it? And you just say, well, you know, I cast it in two games and I lost. I'm going to be like, okay, well, that doesn't tell me anything. Did your opponent have this perfect curve out and you wouldn't have beaten it even if that was a much more powerful card? Did you, you know, get mana screwed in the second game and you played it on turn two, but then you had no mana left to do anything and so it didn't matter? There's all kinds of context, which means that the actual results are not something you, you really care about. This is another, you know, technology we can we can crib from limited resources. They always say, don't be results-oriented, don't be rotty, because if you are focused on your results, then you're actually missing the bigger picture, which is which is the why, this meta level of why the cards are performing the way they are. Playtesting is a means to an end. It's a means to gather more information for yourself. It's a, it's a scientific experiment to go out and gather that data and then you have to process it, though. You can't just play test and trust that that experience is going to make you better and make your understandings of the cards better. I mean, in reality, it will always pretty much do that because it's kind of impossible to totally autopilot and like shut your brain off. Even if you're not trying to, you're probably going to pick up some new information. But I, I've definitely observed players in the local scene here that don't seem to learn from their play patterns. They'll make the same mistake over and over again and often attribute it to something else or, you know, misdiagnose whatever mistake it is they're making. And, you know, that's true to all of us to some degree. And so I think your your challenge when you're playtesting a card or cards or a deck is to 
try and be above that as much as you can and just gather that information and then run it through your filter of your meta knowledge about the game and then update all of your assumptions and evaluations. Yeah, I mean, when you just say the results don't matter, that's a little bit hard to accept because, again, like, if we did have the time-traveling supercomputer, we could just, like, run a million games with all random combinations and figure out what how this card influences your win percentage. But I do really like what you said about like the, the most valuable experience you can have is playtesting with a curious mind, coming up with an explanation for, you, or, you know, answering some of these questions. If you say, well, this card is pretty good in this situation, okay in this situation, and not that great in this situation, actually getting some data for how often those situations come up, uh, and does it actually do what you expected it to do, uh, lets you come up with a better explanation for why the card uh, is overall good or bad, or in all cases, somewhere in between. I don't know if this is too weird and philosophical of me, but I, I really focus on the fact that like this is all thought technology. This is all just ideas in your head. And the best example I can give of this is that, you know, we tested my cube with call time, which we explained in our prior episode, where basically I had a testing list of cards I was considering putting in my cube from call time. We drafted my current cube list without the call time cards as normal with an eight-player pod, and then any of those players could just add in any of the call time cards they wanted because I wanted to get as many reps in them with as, as we could. Uh, and then I drafted a deck that was blue-green, and I wasn't playing very many of the cards from call time because there were very few blue and green cards on my testing list. But I played a couple of opponents that were playing white, and there was a lot of white cards I was testing. Now, in none of my games did any of my opponents cast Starnheim Unleashed. It was just the new Fortel angel-making sorcery. It was never cast against me. But because I was playing these games with the lens of how good or bad is this card going to be, I feel like I learned a lot about how good or bad Starnheim Unleashed is in my environment just from feeling like, well, if that card they just foretold is Starnheim Unleashed, there's no way I can win. And just looking at every game state and saying, like, what if my opponent has Starnheim Unleashed now? What if they have it now? What if they draw it next turn? And... That was every single one of those little thoughts that went through my head and, you know, uh, just in a, in the, in a flash, in, in, a, in a microsecond, that's this, like, data gathering of, like, Starnheim Unleashed, he was good at a lot of these places, and, you know, I'm a pretty beefy mid-range deck, and it's pretty good against me, and I wonder how it's going to stack up against control decks, like, and so even though none of my opponents ever cast this card, I didn't cast this card, I never saw it on the table over the course of this entire playtesting session, I feel like I learned a lot about how that card performs in my environment. Now, am I blowing smoke up my ass, Anthony? No, I think that's interesting. Uh, this is going to be an LR reference heavy episode, apparently. But the the thing they often say is, you know, if you're unsure about a card, when you draw it, imagine if, you know, that four mana enchantment that has some high upside and may not do anything. Imagine if that was just a four Opposition. mana, four, three. Like, a, a, and try and then come up with a better baseline for what is that card actually doing in your deck. And you're describing doing exactly the same thing, but just instead of just thinking about your own strategy and, and how you're trying to uh, be proactive about the game, you're thinking about how you're going to react if your opponent has a certain card. And that makes perfect sense to me. Really, like, when a set is spoiled, I think you can do a fair bit of play testing. I say in big air quotes, you could do a good bit of card evaluation just by playing your cube as normal, thinking about the cards that you might want to add, and imagining how good it would be if I had this card now, if my opponent had this card now. Now, this is this is a very trap-heavy way to playtest cards, because you are relying on yourself to imagine a fair spread of possible circumstances where that card would come up, right? Like, in the example I gave, maybe I only thought to wonder about how good Starnheim Unleashed was once we were in a somewhat stalled board, because I had free 
cycles in my brain because I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about yeah. the exact things on the table. And so that's when it that's when it happened to cross my mind to think about well, is this card good now? You might get frustrated when you draw a bad card you don't want to draw and think, well, nah, this should have just been my that card I wanted it to be. And but if you're only thinking about it in those moments, then you're falling into this trap of just you know, you you only want the card when you want the card. You're not thinking about the card when you wouldn't want it. And so I think you have to be really aware of all of these little biases and traps that it's very easy to fall into as a player when you're trying to evaluate what a card does. Yeah, I think you're right that that mode of observation uh, can be weak to a lot of certain biases. But I also completely can relate to that experience of, you know, I put a card into my cube and I think this card's really great. You know, it's going to play out well in all these different scenarios. And then I just draw a hand with it and I'm immediately like, this doesn't fit into my curve at all. It's, you know, I'm not going to be able to cast it until this turn. And by then this is already going to be on the field. So it doesn't actually interact with anything. Why is this card in my deck? It's horrible. (laughs) And like all of that, just from literally seeing it in the context of six other cards, which I could have done outside of uh, the context of playing a game, but it's just so hard to actually switch your, switch your mind into that mode. And it speaks to the depth of magic, right? Like I think a lot of cube designers, myself included, spend a fair amount of time on Cube Cobra, just drafting our own cube. Because again, seeing, no. seeing a card in the context of a pack is a whole new light. It's a whole new context, right? You, you evaluate it totally differently. A card might be totally viable in your environment, powerful enough to put into decks, can hang with the other cards in the environment, but it's just never going to get drafted because there's always something more appealing that your deck can play in most packs. It's like, you know, it's just, it's a riskier effect. And so why would your players take a risk if the reward is not high enough? Uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why cards just behave differently in a draft pack, in a hand, in a pool after you've drafted, whether the card actually makes your main deck or not is a huge consideration. This was very pronounced for me with the the combat trick cube that I have been puttering around with. And I I think I got the list to an okay place. So I want to kind of draft it again sometime if we if we can make that happen with the local play group, because it's been it's changed kind of dramatically. But that's an environment where I was trying to make a class of cards that I historically, my bias is strongly against combat tricks in powerful cube environments because I do not want the potential of getting two for one or worse by pointing a combat trick at something and having it removed in response or bounced or otherwise interacted with. And so I built this combat trick cube with tons of combat tricks in it and I could kind of like put my mind into two modes. One mode was, all right, spike draft this, draft this as the the best player you can be, Andy, which is not that good of a player, but you know, the best I can be and just try and win. And if I did that, I found myself avoiding the combat tricks as much as possible and still just taking the cards that were generic good stuff, taking fixing really highly, or I could kind of draft it as the cube designer. And I, I know that I put this blue red wizards deck in there with Adelies and all of these combat trick instants and sorceries. And I know that I put this red green dreadhorde arcanist marwin deck that can ramp into huge mana and cast back these spells like i know these these themes are possible in the cube and so i could sit down and easily just draft one of those decks too right like here's here's like the ultimate paradox all playtesting is completely informed by your biases right like you're the one casting the spells you're the one drafting the deck you're the one building the deck and so your biases are going to inform all of the data you gather. You might not be the kind of player that makes a decision that would result in you learning a whole bunch of new things about how cards perform because you just didn't make that decision. And so there's this paradox of all of your data is somehow tainted by the fact that it is, is inherently involves your input. Can we digress a little bit? And, and I feel like I've already digressed a lot, so please digress in a different maybe direction. Maybe we should digress regress. Uh, 
So the question I have is, why is card evaluation actually important? So as a player, that's pretty clear. I want to win. So I want to know what are the most powerful cards? What are the most powerful cards in this context of this cube? And what are the most powerful cards in the context of my deck? But why does it actually matter if I'm a cube designer? Because in theory, I should be able to just put whatever swath of random cards I want into a pile. And it's kind of up to my players to figure out what are the most powerful cards in that context. I think it's a perfectly valid way to design a cube. Like, treat it like a weird experiment and put some cards together and let some players draft it and see what results from it. Like, that's, that's a fun thing to do. Magic is fun. That's not going to be unfun. This is maybe a hot take, or maybe it's just a very biased take. I actually think in some ways card evaluation is most critically important for cube designers, far more so than being a, a player in an established meta or whatever. Because, number one... I talked about those those two lenses before, right? Where the question is, in what circumstances is this card good or bad? What very specific game states do I want this card versus not want this card? And then the second one is, in what density, in what ratios are those game states likely to occur over the course of whatever format I'm playing? And Cube is one of the only contexts where you have control over that second one. (laughs) Every decision you make, every card you include in the Cube changes the densities and the likelihood that you will end up in certain kinds of board states you put more creatures with more toughness than they have power in the cube you're more likely to end up in these board stalls where nobody has good attacks you put more board wipes in the cube you're more likely to end up on empty boards you put more counter spells in the cube you're more likely to end up with players with empty hands and nothing nothing in play every single decision every little card swap changes that context and thereby changes the evaluation of every other card that was already in the cube entirely and so i think if you want to be a cube designer and design the kinds of cubes where you have control over, where you're exercising some expression or control over the kind of gameplay you want to cultivate, then understanding card evaluation is critical because it allows you to actually turn those knobs. Without an understanding of what happens when I put this card in this environment, then you're kind of you're kind of just shooting your gun into the fog, right? Right, <laughs> sure so it's, a- it's, it's like... <laughs> The, the reason you need card evaluation skills as a designer is not because uh, it makes sense to put better cards into the cube, but if you're trying to cultivate a certain kind of play experience, you want to make the fun, that kind of experience that you're going for, also the experience that is powerful because your players are going to try to win. So you need to be able to evaluate cards in that context in order to actually make that an appealing strategy and a successful strategy. Right. And, you know, it, it's just a matter of like, to try and design a cube without paying attention to card evaluation, if let's, I mean, let's just get some basic things out of the way just so we don't get pedantic Discord messages. We're talking about cubes that are designed to be played. People can obviously design cubes that are meant to be novelties or meant to be fun collections of cards or they're about an artist or whatever. Like, that's all totally valid. But if your goals are gameplay oriented, this is a cube that is meant to be played, you intend to play it, then the only way you can possibly do the work of designing the cube, right? Like the the job, the work of a designer is making decisions that shape some environment, right? And if you're making decisions arbitrarily because you're not taking into, into account card evaluation, you're not really designing. You're just kind of picking stuff and seeing how it goes, which is not to throw any shade at that. Like I said, I think it could be kind of fun. Like that's kind of what chaos draft is, right? Like chaos draft is like, we don't know what this environment looks like. We don't know what's in these packs. There's no established meta. No one's ever drafted these 53 different booster sets all together in one time to see what happens. And that's fun, right? There's, there's nothing against that. But I think most people that are listening to this podcast that care to think about card evaluation this way, care to design cubes, spend time doing it, do it because they are. there's this feedback loop of 
they try to accomplish something, their players play in this environment, and they and the designer can then evaluate whether or not their goals have been realized or not, and then reevaluate all the decisions that led to that sort of cube in the first place. And that feedback loop is a is the process of cube design, it's the process of card evaluation, and that's what's I don't know, fun and exciting about this for me personally, at least. Yeah. And what's kind of baked into what you said is that in a way you can almost kind of outsource some of this card evaluation where if you design a cube and you have certain goals, uh, you can let people draft it and see what they draft and use that as a big like source of card evaluation. Like the, the way that people put cards into decks together is valuable data. The fact that you as a designer, if you have good card evaluation skills, can can preempt a lot of that is even better. But those two things can work together. I do want to touch briefly. We talked about personal bias, which I think we kind of explained and makes sense. And this is the thing that I'm hyper conscious of. Like I even said it in this in this episode. I like using my life as a resource. The appeal of a very undercosted flying dragon is it pulls strong on me. And I, I look at that for life and I'm like, Pah, pusha. Like I'm gonna completely lock down the board with my giant flyer. They won't be able to attack for multiple turns and I'm gonna start beating them in the face once I stabilize. Like my bias is to assume that that doesn't matter because maybe a lot of my experience is shaped by playing powerful environments where your life total is more of a resource and it doesn't matter to hurt yourself as long as you're advancing your game plan. Whereas in environments with lower powered cards, your life becomes more precious and you can't just throw it away. So that's a bias of mine, for example. As a cube designer, you have to deal with personal bias, but you also have to deal with the bias of your playgroup, which we have a, a local play group here, which is a somewhat rotating cast, but at least since COVID, we only have a certain subset of us that are playing digitally, and my cube gets drafted by the same people very often, and a lot of their assumptions about the environment are like self-fulfilling prophecies, because they assume, well, this deck's no good, so they don't draft it, or they don't see the signals that it's open, or they assume this deck's broken, and so they just, uh, you know, from pack one kind of force it, and are, pull, are soaking up all the cards and trying to prove that it's really good. And that's a really challenging thing too as a designer because relying on others I think is critical because you're designing a game that's played by other people. You're not going to clone yourself seven times and, and play magic with yourself. But also that just like the information you get from playtesting cards yourself has to be put through this filter of what does that actually mean for my meta understanding of the environment? And you know, some examples of pitfalls I see people fall into is like, well, you know, we've drafted my cube twice, and both times the player with this card won. So that means this card is too good, and I got to cut her from my cube. You know, we hear we hear versions of this all the time, and that could be true. But there's also a uh, many, many other, somewhat more likely explanations for why that happened that are not just this card is too good needs to be cut. Sometimes the player that's just the most skilled wins the most often, and it doesn't really matter what they're drafting and whatever they're drafting to seem overpowered. And so that's even harder, I think, because. I, I think a, a self-aware player and cube designer should strive to be conscious of some of their own biases or at least aware of some of their leanings. It's, it's impossible to like always be... The, the, the deal with bias is you can't understand all of it. That's why, that's why it's bias. But when it's coming from outside, from a third party, I think it's even harder to know what importance to place on information gathered in that way. Yeah, that's true. There's definitely a, you'll have some confounding factors where like the best player in the in the group likes a certain strategy, so that strategy feels overpowered. I've definitely experienced that before. Right, and just even your players having seen that a deck is successful, right? Like someone played it against them last time and beat them with it. They're like, okay, now I know that I can draft that deck where they might not have thought to draft that deck before, and that can lead to these like ruts kind of forming where 
people only think these three or four decks are viable and everything else is a weird kind of pile. And you as a designer may have tried to seed all this other stuff in there, but there's really no way to know if that's successful if your group is biased towards not drafting that strategy. You just don't really know. Uh, so we, just to get like a little bit more detailed for a second, a lot of times we talk about like strictly better cards. And I think that a, a maybe better thought technology for thinking about that is actually just uh, local maximums. And what I mean by that is sometimes there are axes that we can concretely describe why a card is better than another. So for example, we have lightning bolt versus lightning strike versus open fire. You know, we're just scaling the mana cost and talking about, well, this one is strictly more efficient. But so often cards operate on more than one axis. So it's like, well, do you want lightning bolt or do you want magma jet? Magma Jet not only does does less damage, but it gives you the scry too. And so how do you actually balance one effect against a slightly different effect is so much of the challenge. And it really does come down to those that question you described of, well, how often is that uh, context and that extra ability actually relevant? You know, we could talk about the instant version of a spell versus the sorcery version of a spell. The instant version is almost always going to be uh, the better version, but actually in the context of a cube that has almost no other instants uh, or no other ways to interact with things at instant speed, there's actually going to be very, very little difference. So we actually want to take that and adjust how much of an improvement that actually is. And that's the challenge of evaluating magic cards. I think the concrete examples like Lightning Bolt versus Magma Jet are good. Like, I think people would agree on the circumstances where Lightning Bolt and Magma Jet are good or bad. And it's very easy to think of a lot where Lightning Bolt is better because it's cheaper and it kills more stuff and it does more damage. But there's also, I think people would agree that if your opponent's threats all have two toughness and you have seven lands in play and there's nothing in your deck that costs more than four mana and you're hellbent, then you definitely, definitely, definitely would rather draw Magma Jet because it still kills a creature, it scries two, you're not going to have any chance of me to use that mana for anything else this this turn. There's just, you, you, you can definitely devise plenty of scenarios that are not completely implausible where those cards where magma jet is better than lightning bolt and really it comes down to just how likely are these things to come up in in the course of if gameplay and i mean that's a great example where you can come up with a good explanation if you find consistently in a particular format uh you often end up with empty hands and the biggest pressure for the red deck or the deck that would be playing magma jet and lightning bolt is not that they need one extra point of damage to kill critical creatures or really get their opponent dead it's that they often end up stumbling late in the game and just flooding out and if you have that kind of explanation you can start to point to why an effect is better than another and that gets into why all these things are interconnected because did you get to the point in the game where you stumbled and were flooding out because your deck was full of magma jets and not lightning bolts and therefore you couldn't kill your opponent fast enough because you weren't using mana efficiently enough? Like, there's, it, it's all interconnected. And so it's like, I, I, I picture it as like this giant mobile or like this big web of like nodes with like rubber bands and stuff stuck between them. And you like grab one to try and swap it out to like change your evaluation. And all of a sudden, like this entire network just reshapes itself because you've made this sort of change. And it could be even, we've talked about this before, I think happens to a lot of cube designers where with each set, you make some incremental changes and you're always kind of looking at the cards that you that aren't meeting your goals, whether your goals are to play powerful cards, your goals are to, you know, realize some theme or idea. You're always kind of cutting the cards that don't fit your goals and adding more cards that do. But over time, what happens is a lot of those cards that are in the middle, the cards that were already in the queue have been there for a long time, but, you know, you've never considered to be not good enough. The context of the cube changes enough that they are not good anymore. This is the boiled frogs 
a language that you invented, which which I really like. And I, I think that really highlights how. Well, I I appropriated the language. I certainly didn't invent it. I'm not boiling for you, you. This is the thought technology you invented uh, in this context of magic. Take some credit for this. So it's like it's not like I'm, I'm not making the suggestion that if you take a cube that has lightning bolt and put magma jet in instead, that all of a sudden brand new archetypes are viable and everything's totally transformed. But I am arguing that it does make a change to the environment and everything kind of like shifts and twists a little bit. And if you do that with a bunch of cards over the course of six months and you keep just making little twists and shifts and stuff, then the environment does change and all of your evaluations need to be reconsidered. I just cut a boiled frog disdainful stroke was very good in the first iteration of my cube. But as the uh, mana cost has been coming down, suddenly we were talking about cards and someone was like, what is this card doing here? It doesn't do anything. And you had one of those moments where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Point. You're right. <laughs> Why is this? I never take that card or put it in my deck or anything, but you make a good point. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Those those moments still come up for me all the time in my own cube where, you know, it feels like the sleep falls from my eyes and I'm like, wait, why? What? No, get this out of here. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense at all. Do you ever have the opposite experience of why haven't you been putting something in your cube? Yeah, I do. I, I, I'll tell you this. You'll appreciate this. I had sounds, that moment that today a fun. little bit. I had that moment today a little bit with Metallic Mimic. What? All of a sudden, I was like, wait a minute. Is Metallic Mimic exactly what I want for my cube? Because Is it just a two mana three two with upside? Right. right. I mean, I'm, I'm always looking for good cards for aggro decks that are colorless. And Metallic Mimic is a two mana two one. And I was talking on just on our call time preview episode about how I think oftentimes aggro decks don't have to actually care that much about the quality of their threats. They just have to care about having a good density of them. It lower mana costs on their opponents so they can curve out and keep the pressure on. And if we're happy with a, you know, one and a red two, two first strike, maybe a two generic mana two one is a totally fine floor. And then, yeah, I mean, it's how many games, here's the question. In how many games is Metallic Mimic going to put one more counter on a creature. And if it does that, I think it's totally worth its inclusion. How many games is it going to whiff? Is it not going to put a counter on anything? How many games is it going to put a counter on two creatures or three creatures? Or how many games am I going to curve Metallic Mimic into Deep Forest Hermit or something? Uh, that one is a little bit more... I mean, that'll happen sometimes, just like Daniel will sometimes kill me with Doomscar and, uh, and Selfless Spirit. But that's not... <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't expect that to be a, a viable strategy. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about it, and I was like, maybe that's the aggro two drop I've been missing all this time. I mean, there's this huge network of uh, vanilla test adjacent things where, you know, we can talk about the vanilla test being if you look at a four mana four four and a four mana four four with protection from dwarves, people will misevaluate that and say, well, I don't want this thing that has protection from dwarves because half the abilities of it, you know, half of it being a four four and half of it being protection from dwarves don't matter. It's it's the same kind of uh, logical flaw when you're looking at Metallic Mimic and saying, okay, well, this is a card that I need to put in a deck with a ton of the same kinds of creatures. When really, if you just try and recategorize the way you're thinking about it and saying, well, what if this just said the next creature I play gets a, gets an effect? You might actually evaluate that much more highly because it right. you know it sets the expectations in a way that is more clear uh, and you can you can evaluate more you know, without the distraction of this very high ceiling. Yeah, I think that's And there are plenty of tribes that I have, like, like, there's a ton of humans in my white decks. There just are. Like, that's just how white aggro cards work. A lot of them are humans. And there's a lot of elves in my green deck. And so, like, it's funny, because I, I, at first I was like, why is he talking about additive distraction? I don't get it. I had forgot that most people's shorthand for Metallic Mimic is that it's a tribal card, because we've played it in your battle box enough times that 
I think of that card now as a card where, yeah, it just says the next creature you play gets a plus one plus one counter. Wow. Like that's broke you. that's how I've shortcutted it because, frankly, most of the times I've cast Metallic Mimic, it's been in your battle box. That's an interesting space uh, where it's it's very cool as a cube designer to say, here I can take this cube, uh, this card that's pretty powerful in a certain situation, and actually put it in another situation where it doesn't do quite the same thing, but it does something that is more appropriate for this environment, and that might be like Metallic Mimic in a non-tribal context. I think that's both or very prismatic cool. vista in your cube, which is otherwise a power level that you might expect with one evolving wilds. Sure, absolutely. I think the downside of that is that players do come with that expectation, you know, especially if it's not just someone reading Metallic Mimic for the first time and sort of reading this sounds like a tribal card, but if they've seen it in constructed decks or in draft formats where it definitely plays that way, uh, they're going to start looking for that and, and planting right. these kinds of like challenging recontextualizations in a cube can be a drawback. One instance that I was really concerned about with my own cube was adding Pestermite, which I, I think is just this perfect little like tempo-y creature, but because of it, it's part of a very well-known and established combo that a lot of cubes run, I was worried people would see it and say, well, I picked up Pestermite and then never saw the other half of the combo. What gives? This cube is a, this cube is a bust. Which, which is this whole other layer about card evaluation where we, we also just have all this extra baggage from individual cards. This is a good point to close on because Jet did specifically ask us to touch on this when we were talking about this episode, which is confirmation bias, which is related to all the things we've been talking about. But when you think a card plays a certain way, the decisions you make when you are testing that card are going to be founded on your assumptions for how that card performs. And this can lead to bias in a couple of directions, right? Like if you think a card is bad, it might be because you don't understand what makes the card good and therefore are not going to build it properly into a deck or sequence it properly and therefore it will actually be bad for you, right? Like you, you, your bias will become real because you don't understand how the card is played. That's why you think it's bad. An example I can give of this, which is another example of the same way that playing your battle box made me recontextualize Metallic Mimic, playing with the modal double-faced lands from Zendikar Rising made me put Lonely Sandbar in my cube because I looked at Lonely Sandbar for five years and thought, I don't really like tap lands. And it's just sure late game value being able to cycle it, but I just, I don't want to put a tap land in my cube. And when we got the Zendikar Rising cards and I saw Baleen Veil and I saw these other like card draw spells that had a land on the back, I was like, you know what I really wish there was? I wish there was just a basic blue cantrip that had a land on the back. And I was like, wait a minute, that's Lonely Sandbar. That, that is what Lonely Sandbar is. And me framing Lonely Sandbar primarily as a spell. I put it in a spell slot in my decks because I don't like tap lands, but I like cantrips. And that sort of slight shift in my understanding made me very excited to put Lonely Sandbar in my cube and play it in all my blue decks, and I've enjoyed it ever since. Yeah, maybe that's what this whole episode should have been, is about how often evaluating new effects is by is about trying to reframe them and restructure them as familiar effects, which you do know how to evaluate. Uh, I mean, we talked about the other perfect example of Shimmerdrift Veil in the last episode, where yeah, just like with example. the Lonely Sandbar, I had looked at the uh, Thriving Lands and thought they were a certain kind of thing, but as soon as I saw this new sort of thing that presented the vanilla option, I was like, oh wait, if I just put these against this new vanilla test, they actually are just sort of like this little extra wrinkle, which just is like extra complexity and noise, which I don't like. And it's very weird how that happens. Have you ever, or... Do you think it's even possible to play test cards in a way that 
ignores somewhat your biases? Could you intentionally sequence things wrong or try and adopt a completely different assumption about how our card works? Here's an example we, we talked about this past week. You, uh, you were hanging your head in shame because you lost a, uh, a Zendikar quick draft on Arena to somebody oh, that played totally. a turn one wayward guide oh beast gosh. and attacked you with it. And yeah, I, we should have actually maybe said this at the beginning of the episode. I did say, uh, as soon as my opponent played this creature, I have to quit magic if I lose this game. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot. So, Anthony's yeah, I'm, done I'm with still magic. here, but I can't actually ever play magic he's still, again. He's still a podcast host, but Anthony's forbidden from playing magic anymore yeah. because he made this pact with himself. Yeah, this is, it's a one-mana... Is it a 2-2? Two, two? Let me get this shit It's right. a 2-2 two, two with haste. Yeah, it's, uh, it's basically Goblin Guide, except you have to pick up your own lands. When it deals damage to an opponent, you have to return a land you control to its owner's hand. And Anthony's opponent... Play this wayward guy beast on turn one, attacked him, thereby putting their land back in their hand. Quite a bad tempo. Well, I mean, I guess, again, tempo's complicated. It's a good tempo play in some ways and a bad tempo play in other ways. But you had the assumption of, like, well, you can't do that. Like, that, that doesn't work in limited. Like, your deck can't possibly be aggressive or low curving enough that you're not going to totally shut yourself off because all you have to do, Anthony, is, like, untap, play a land and play a 1-3, and now your opponent's whole strategy looks pretty, pretty bad, and they basically time walk themselves for two damage. And yet, this opponent ended up beating you, so you had to quit playing Magic forever. And do you think it would be possible for you to end up with a Wayward Guide Beast in your pool and say, I want to learn about this card. I'm going to assume that I actually can succeed by playing this on turn one and attacking my opponent and returning my land to my hand and just play that way? Or do you think it's like divorcing yourself from your assumptions about how things work is too difficult or too foreign such that you can't do it in good faith? Uh, I mean, I think, again, we can bring up this thought technology of local maximums. It's going to be very hard for me to move into such a different space where I am so far from anything that I assume is a, a way to play the game. But once I've seen it proven to me, the idea of, well, I can just play this and then, like, hopefully have a hand of all combat tricks and just completely cheese my opponent out in a couple turns. Apparently, that's the kind of deck you can build. It's not something that I want to try on Arena when I'm going to waste all my gems doing that but uh no my precious gems gems. but yeah i mean i i think that setting yourself up to have a diverse set of play experiences will make you a better uh, maybe just make you have a better time playing the game not to this sounds like i'm just trying to throw you under the bus i'm really not but this is the only other example i can think of that came to mind Mm -hmm. i remember the first draft after my zendikar rising updates of my cube we were playing, and I was actually watching you play, and you kept a five-land hand in your deck that included Seagate Restoration as uh, as one of the lands, which is the you know the big draw spell for six or seven mana that you can also play on as a land on the backside. And in your five-land hand, you played Seagate Restoration as your first land, and I was sitting there watching the Discord like, no, what are you doing? You already have five of the six or seven lands you need to cast that spell. Like, or I guess four, because you can't count that one, but I felt like you were already... I felt like the value of keeping that hand was in that you effectively only kept a four lander, not a five lander, because this card was was modal. And after the game, I asked you about it, and you were like, well, yeah, I just assumed that that's always a land unless I draw it super late in the game. You basically said that your shortcut was, yeah, I, I can't possibly cast this spell. I have to play this as a land unless I happen to top deck it, you know, super late in the game. And that was interesting for me because I was like, I feel like that undersells the card and it's actually way better. And you wouldn't you know, realize it's way better if you're playing it under those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, you're right, I kind of went halfway. I was like, okay, here's a new card, I'm willing to take it, I'll put it in my deck, but I wasn't looking to optimize it, and that was definitely a flaw. I mean, it's not a flaw, it's just, uh, I, I'm, 
it, it has so happened that you did draw your lands and you would have been able to cast that spell that game and I did <laughs> I did hold it over you. But you might not uh-huh. have, right? Like that's that's the thing, is like you can't look the at that and say like because me. of that result. I mean, yeah, you can't look at it and say because of that result, you know, that was a mistake or whatever, and this card's actually good. All the stuff has to be put through that sort of layer of processing. But but you're 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 right that I think that I stand by my shortcut. Like that still would be my heuristic, I think, is that yeah, I, I was just treating it as a land that could have relevance in the late game if I happen to top deck it with, well, I guess a full hand. It's a weird card. I don't really like it. Well, and, and I also um, think that, I think part of it too is that I think you were like, well, I want to play this tap lane now because I don't want to pay three life later. Where in my head, I was like, you only had the, I think you only had the one other blue source in your hand and maybe you needed double blue or something. And I was like, well, this is the great part about this card is that you can still hold on to it till late because if you have to play it untapped because you draw running spells and you need your blue source then you can if you need to in a pinch uh, i think it was all kinds of little heuristics going on there but but yeah I, like the, the shortcuts are valuable because that's the only way you can play magic if you actually sat down to every game and tried to and actually read every single card and thought about every single possible line and considered them all like some algorithm and you know weighed their value and saw where those branching decision trees went like you just you can't do that you have to play with a bunch of shortcuts it's just that's another example i think of how your assumptions about how a card is played will affect its performance, right? You might get to the end of the draft and be like, well, we drafted this cube three times with the Zendikar Rising updates and no one's ever cast this spell. So that's enough for me to say that it basically never gets cast. But it might be because people are playing with the expectation that it never gets cast. Yeah, for sure. Confirmation bias. I think we have to call it there, Anthony. I, I can't edit another three-hour podcast episode. I don't have it in me. All right, I just have five more quick points. Go ahead, hit them. No, I'm kidding. I know it's a joke. Uh, I'm just going to hold you the to the bit. The one other point I would want to sort of maybe tease your brain with. Uh, Ooh, tease me. So we were we did this interesting playtesting scheme with your cube where you just said, well, you can play any of these cards you know, from this testing list after the draft. They're just free. They're in your pool, uh, which I was skeptical of. After the experience, I thought, well, this was actually pretty valuable. I, you know, ended up playing with a ton of these cards and learned a lot about them. But then when I was going to update my own cube, I was realizing that the reason that I wanted to, well, even to take it another step back, a lot of the cards you were critical of in that list, you were saying, well, people just didn't end up putting them in their list. That's a good reason you will not consider them for your cube, ultimately. Well, it's, it's a data point, right? I, I, I think, sure, yeah. I think yeah. that tells me something I already knew. Like, I, the example we talked about in the show was Showdown of the Skulls, which is a Boros card. And there was just no Boros draft at the table. But that's the thing that people should know about any cube environment is that there's 10 color combinations and only eight drafters. So, and in my cube, there's very oftentimes at least one or two monocolored decks. So the chances that there was going to be a Boros drafter were already not super high, not guaranteed. Right. But I then when I was adding cards, you know, finally getting to my update with Kaldheim cards in my own cube, I was realizing, well, I don't think that same kind of playtesting would be especially fruitful because a lot of these cards that I'm adding, I don't expect them to be, you know, the high pick, the build around card that's really going to draw people in. I'm kind of excited about some of these cards as your like 23rd card in your deck. And I want to have players be happy with like, oh, this is an okay 23rd card because it kind of fits in just barely with all of these little edges. Well, wait, that sounds to me like it would almost be the most valuable kind of testing then because then you would actually get to see your player's evaluation of like, is this your 23rd card or is this your 28th card and you're not playing it? Except everybody has these giant card pools because they've added a bunch of extra cards. Sure. I think I don't we know. should iterate on this playtesting scheme because uh, it's definitely interesting. Well, like we talked about in the show, you learn some things from it and you don't learn other things from it. I do think that it prioritizes a kind of, like if we're talking about 
playtesting as a means to inform this meta layer of knowledge, I think that it optimizes for learning as much as possible about the cards to further inform your knowledge about the game. I don't think it as well informs some of those more detailed questions of like, where exactly does this fit on the curve of playability of cards in my cube? And how likely is it to be main decked in draft decks or to pull somebody into a lane or whatever? And how likely is it to be in the sideboards? I I agree, this is not a great way to evaluate that for the reasons mentioned. So it's like we have to have good mental models for what we can learn from certain exercises. Yes, the mental models are very important. Maybe we'll call this episode mental modeling. Strike some mental poses, Anthony. Bam, bam, dab, dab, dab on them. Can you see them? No, I can't. Can you feel my psychic poses? I can feel some of the vibes. Some of the vibes are radiating. Radiant vibes. That'd be a great magic card. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Lucky Paper Radio. We kind of went on a little stroll there, Anthony, talking about card evaluation and all the things that come from it. Really are. There are a lot of examples, I think. We, we kind of just naturally stumbled upon a handful of them of times where some thought technology radically changed our evaluation of a card or we realized a card was actually good or bad and the and the and the scales fell from our eyes and we saw the world for the first time and I don't know I think it happens a lot that's one of the great things about magic thank you to DJ James Nasty for producing all of our music thank you to you for listening and thank you to Anthony for talking about card evaluation with me happy to do it And I just want to ask our listeners, send in both your Noodle Power Rankings and your Noodle Quality Evaluation Strategies. What's your mental model? What's this meta layer of knowledge you have about noodles that allows you to guess whether a noodle will be tasty or not before you put it in your mouth? How does one eat pasta to maximize the data collection for further pasta making? Now you've just taken the fun out of it. Yeah, I'll cut that out.